I want to do all the things, and that's one of the reasons I'm an actor because I wanted to do all the things. Right. And say, rather than training to be a doctor and a lawyer and an interior designer or a, or a politician, I get to be an actor and then I can do all of those things depending on which role I'm playing right. without having to do the training. So it's also laziness in some ways. <laughs> Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Tasha. Hello, Tasha. Hello. And this is a a weird thing for me to do this conversation, and I I think I'm going to have a few weird conversations (laughs) for getting better acquainted over the, the next kind of month or so, because I've already kind of interviewed you. Yeah. When you were a character, yes. um, whereas now I'm interviewing you as yourself. I know, which is weird. Yeah. Weird. Right. I guess you quite often play characters. You are an actor, right? Yeah. Which I've, I've just spoiled one of the future questions, but people will, will <laughs> deal. You're probably less used to, to talking as yourself on mic. Is that right or not? Yeah, I've done a few interviews before. They're always awkward, so it's <laughs> probably going to be awkward because it's really hard to kind of know how to talk about yourself particularly when you're talking about yourself in context of work, which is when I've done those interviews. Right. And then trying to marry those two up is right. two so things. I, I guess you've done a few... Like, I guess I've seen, like, when vaguely Googling you, like, I've seen you do... you Googled like, me. Yeah, well, you know, I, <laughs> I do that before I talk to people because it's a good idea. Um, <laughs> like, I guess you've done some of those, like, you know, vi- video camera in your face yeah. talk about your character. Yeah, yeah. awkward. Um, yeah. The first question that I ask everybody yeah. is, how do you know me? How do I know you? This is random, isn't it? I know you because we worked on a project called... Oh, crumbs. Storylines. Storylines. And I'll tell you why I got confused, because it used to be headlines. Right, it's had headlines a lot of different names. Yeah. It's got, I think it's got a new name for where the project's gone now as well, so there's probably loads of names yeah. in your head. You're trying to sort through which one's the right one to pick. Exactly, and it's Thursday. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so we worked on a project called Storylines with Ampersand Media, which was a show we'd put together in the space of, what, six, eight hours? Yeah. Based on the day's big... All small stories. We'd be working in Deptford Lounge, which is the library in Deptford, and we'd ask people which of the stories, the people who were in the library at the time, they would like us to do a show about. And then we'd create a show around that story. So, right. And uh, Dave was there, really, to handle all the Twitter stuff, That's all the right. media stuff. In theory, I was there to, yeah. just, to, to do the tweeting. And but occasionally I Occasionally got it. involved in it, yeah. As, as it, it's kind of something that happens to me, I guess, in my yeah. life. Um, I guess because, as well, for me it was exciting because I, I don't get to do that much theatre these days. Yeah. But I studied theatre, yeah. and theatre is what I kind of initially thought I'd be doing with my mm. life. And so it was really exciting to work on, on storylines. I mean, yeah. it was good to have a bit of extra cash, um, but it was also just exciting to watch something happen in a day, and then it's over, it's done. Yeah, you know? and then it's on something new. Right. And, and every week it's different, or every month it's different. Right. And it was interactive with the public. So it's in a yeah. library. They get to they vote on which headlines. We chose the headlines, didn't we? Yeah. And then wrote a list. And then you guys would go around to get the public to to yeah. vote on it. And then it was just exciting to watch all of all of you performers doing the work, like going off and oh, co- creating ideas or characters and scenes. That was one of the things that I've cast you in a thing mm. recently. And one yeah. of the things that that maybe go right. 
Tasha had worked really well in that was because of the fact that, in fact, everybody in storylines yeah. would have worked really well in it because everybody was creating stuff really quickly and writing it as well as yeah. performing it, right? And yeah, that's what it, I needed for my performance for this thing. Yeah, it, it asks yeah. for a certain level of, I guess, openness and flexibility. Right. Because you're working so quickly that you have to be willing to let things go. Right. Or take things up. And also required, I guess, on some level, an ability to kind of put yourself in other people's shoes quite quickly. Right. Particularly if you're creating characters that are in the story that you're talking about, which would range from, like, sterilisation through to <laughs> the UEFA, like, scandal that happened last summer. That's right. Um, yeah, there was and some... I didn't know much about football, so that was interesting. Right, right, right. Me neither. I mean, there was a thing that, that you never knew what you were going to be dealing with that day. Yeah. Sometimes it was really serious issues in a public sort of space. Yeah. And that was interesting. But also, like, sometimes the theatre that was made... I mean, often it had a, a Brechtian element, right, yeah. to, for, for theatre buffs. But, but that, I guess, for, for people who don't know theatre, that's more sort of uh, demonstrating ideas rather than being characters. I mean, that's a, a shorthand... It's not, that's not exactly what Brechtian means, but that's... Yeah. So sometimes people would be, like, the Easter Bunny. And, yeah. like, another time they would be an actual character, three-dimensional. Yeah. And kind of, you guys didn't know what you were going to have to be. Absolutely but then often, not. in the same piece, you'd be, like, Brechtian, then serious character. Yeah. Like, so we'd go from Brecht to naturalism yeah, yeah, to yeah. It, all of those things. So you'd be either doing monologues or scenes or songs. Or, right, or, and songs sometimes were a big it had part a very of sort of emotional context and sometimes it's a bit more didactic and I think we tried really hard not to have a particular to not push our own views right on stories and leave it open to people who'd come to watch it right as to where they stood rather than necessarily knowing where we stand yeah absolutely so I think it's quite easy for a sort of group of liberal left-leaning sort of performers and theatre makers to actually do a story that may have a slightly rightward lean and talk more on the left side of things, but we, I think, work quite hard not to put our own right. feelings into it. I mean, it was, it, 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 I think it was an interesting challenge for everyone to have to do that as yeah. well, because sometimes the stories were, like, everybody had a particular view on them. Yeah. Um, and so it was, that was an interesting challenge to watch people doing that. And sometimes, I think there was, I, I don't know if you were doing that one, but there was, there was one of them that was about a really serious terrorist incident that was happening like as 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 the day went on, people were dying in France. It would I can't yeah. I think it was the the I think it was a Charlie Hebdo thing. Like wow. or it might have been that, or it might have been one of the other terrorist atrocities that happened in France this uh, last like when it, whenever it was a couple of years ago. Mm. And that was really weird to be doing that as a, a piece at the same of, time. Yeah, a piece of theatre in a library about something that was ongoing. Like yeah. the, we didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Like I think there was like there was a minute silence that we did as part of it for the for the people who died, okay. and we had to keep checking to see how many people had died so that we could get the number right. But I don't think you were there for that day. But it's yeah, that's the aptness of storylines and headlines in the because you're dealing with stories that day's stories. Anything and everything does come up, right? And you have to sort of deal with it. And sometimes it's useful when you have a context for it. If it comes from, I guess, ongoing news issues, as opposed to maybe things that happen that feel random because they're not part of, I guess, a bigger context. Yeah. Where I guess with the sort of Charlie Hebdo story, yeah. you'd have a, there's a massive amount of context that comes with that, and then, right. all, and then again, also emotionally charged 
feeling that comes with that as well. Yeah, I mean, I felt like the, the most emotionally charged moments in some ways for me, a couple of the, the storylines that I was sort mm. of involved with uh, touched on homelessness mm. and of it like a lot of the people who come into that library not yeah. a lot of them but a number of them yeah. are homeless and yeah. that's a, a space that homeless people can use and that was great I mean yeah. they would contribute quite often um, to the to the show that we were making and they put their opinions forward yeah. but that but then you know it was a very strange moment to, to be touching on things like that and having kind of actual homeless people watching performance of issues around homelessness yeah. and stuff like that it was I, pretty I powerful because we were working in a community space right and it's very much a community project in some ways i think it's quite good to have that there i guess it gives us this sort of sense of this, the, the kind of immediacy of the subject and then the being able to talk to people who it actually affects mm. gives you i guess a, a better or broader understanding of the subject that you're trying to deal with rather than necessarily in isolation when you're telling a story. It's, it doesn't, it's not just a story anymore. It's, it's far more, I guess, real. That sounds a bit wanky, doesn't it? Well, it do, I, I mean, it does, but it's like, it's, sometimes it's annoying mm. that there are kind of elements of p- performance which you can only really describe in wanky terms, but yeah. actually it's not wanky to experience it. Like, yeah. like the people in that library weren't thinking this is pretentious, which is funny because it could, they could have been. Yeah. I mean, most of the, a lot of the people in the library often ignored it completely, yeah. but, 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 but people who were interested in it were interested in it. Yeah. No one was... Yeah. You know, I never really remember anybody kind of going, oh, you, got, you liberal wank, wankers, get out yeah. of here or anything. Everybody was always yeah. you know, engaged with what was going on and just and talking. And it's a very, I think, oh, it's, got a, it's quite a large artistic community, as is Lewisham Borough as a whole and I think you know people are becoming more aware of the sort of art stuff that's going on around them right. and becoming more open to it and I've done shows in Deptford before with a company called Teatro Vivo where we've had the local community actively wanting to be part of it and there was one show we did the Odyssey and uh, a group of kids on roller skates which was a thing at the time all the kids in Lewisham were on roller skates and they came and saw the show the first time around and then they started coming every night to watch the same show or different aspects of the show or bits they hadn't seen before and then when we did it the second time round they actually became part of the performance so we almost recruited these skater kids to help tell the story of this massive Greek epic journey so right I mean yeah Teatro Vivo is some of the same people who do storylines right it's kind of a crossover between those um, groups Mark Stevenson who's the sort of artistic director of Ampersand is also a founding member of Teatro Vivo right Um, so you'll get there's a lot of sort of cross pollination for one of the better and Mark's our kind of mutual like Mark's our mutual friend he's the way he's he's why I came into storylines and you as well and a lot of the stuff that Teatro Vivo's done in Mm. Deptford has been really across the community interactive theatre like where you don't know what's quite going to happen because yeah. you're working with and who's a performer and who's a real person who just happens to be in the spot where a show's happening and using the local community in terms of local shops and restaurants like the, the deli and the hairdressers and stuff like that so really engaging with the local community the Albany Theatre and stuff like that so I think it's really positive to have a group working right. in a space particularly a space that is as deprived as Deptford yeah that brings a lot more, I guess, excitement and enthusiasm about the area. Right. 
Yeah. And another thing I thought was always good about working with storylines was that, I mean, it wasn't always the case, but generally speaking, the actors were quite a diverse group of people. Yeah. And that was it very important, because otherwise, if it was just a, a group of, you know, white middle-class men coming into Deptford <laughs> to, to give the people, uh, you know, art, yeah. then that was a very different thing from a group of people who reflect that community, at least... At least in, in appearance, if not necessarily yeah. in background, but you know, I and think a, that's a lot important. of people who work with Ampersand and Tetra Vivo know the borough very right. well, either live in the borough or near the borough or have associated with the borough in some way. So, we all have, I guess, a part of our soul is in Lewisham, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, apart, you know, I exactly, I was a, a little bit of a tourist in that respect. In that, <laughs> at Deptford, although I know it quite well, it's not, not where I live. But I have a connection to East yeah. London generally, so I was happy to, to be there as an observer on the Twitter feeds. The second question I ask everybody mm. is, what do you do now? Uh, I guess we're covering that a little bit, but what do you do now? What do you, what do you answer when people ask you that question? <laughs> uh, at parties, I mostly say I'm a receptionist. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but I... I guess I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an actor. <laughs> You're laughing because I did the face. Yeah, uh, but I'm laughing because I know how it feels to admit to something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's not even... It's, 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 I always find words tricky when you talk about what you do because, you know, am I an actor? Am I a performer? Am I an artist? Am I a theatre maker? There are so many words right, exactly. for what we do. And I kind of fall into all of them, but they all feel a bit strange <laughs> to say. And I guess I should just own what I do for a living. So yeah, I guess I'm an actor. I mean, you you don't have a day job now, right? You are a working actor. I am Touchwood. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the last couple of years has been quite busy for me. Not like constant. I've had periods of obviously not working. And like everyone else, the job market isn't as friendly as it used to be. So I guess walking into a place and going, yeah, I kind of want to work here, but part-time. And if a job comes up, I'm just going to kind of disappear. And if an audition happens, I'm going to need you to let me off. It's not as easy as it used to be to get people to kind of agree to take (laughs) you on on a flexi ad hoc basis. Right. So I guess the reason mostly that I haven't had a day job is actually because getting a day job is quite difficult. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I guess getting a day job that can actually support your living is quite difficult. Yep. Um, <laughs> I've done the gamut of bars and shops. Uh, I guess there comes a point where you kind of don't want to work necessarily in customer-facing roles, and there's nothing wrong with working <laughs> customer-facing roles at all. But sometimes you need, you actually need more money yep. to live. Yep. <laughs> um, especially if you've got long periods of time to do so. So. Yeah, I mean, and you are doing okay, Touchwood. Like we, like yeah. you, you have been getting quite a lot of work of late. I guess. Yeah, reasonable you know, amount of work. I would yeah. say. Yeah. I mean, it's you know never like that's the thing. Like it never feels safe when you're freelance in whatever capacity to yeah, say yes, I I'm think, doing all right because yeah. you never know what's around the corner. And I think that goes for any freelancer. Absolutely. Or, you know, particularly if you don't necessarily create your own work, I think your sort of the ground's a little bit less even. Right. For you. But I wouldn't imagine it'd be any different from a plumber or, right. I don't know, a graphic designer 
they'll probably be more different because they probably get more work because you know there's a need for them. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> there's a need for actors. There is, um, um, but there's a lot of us. There is. Yeah, there this is, is a lot it. of us. That's, that's true. And like, and, and in the work. arts in general, this is the problem that, that a lot of people do it as a hobby and a passion, mm. and so there's loads of people who do it. And so if you want to try and make it at your your living. Whatever that means, it's really it's difficult to do. But I guess you seem to be doing it all right at the moment, so yeah. that's good. Touch wood. Touching yeah, we keep, keep we keep on touching the wood. One of the things I know about you is that you, you make music as well as act, right? You play instruments and stuff yeah. like that because that's one of the things that you did within storylines. Like yeah. a, a lot of the, the the actors in that had an instrument of some kind, yeah. and that kind of helped with the kind of the Brexian nature of some of the performances with everyone doing songs and yeah. stuff like that. So I know you you play instruments, and also because I googled you before we started talking, I know that you studied both acting and music. Or yeah, I studied as an actor museum. Yeah. At Rosebeefford, so that's an actor who plays instruments. I guess which gives you an additional skill, right? And a way of working that might be slightly different in that you, you tend to work more ensemble and opens you up to a, a, another world of performance, right? So acting was the main thing that you c- cared about when you started that course, or were you split between the two? And how did that go? Like, which one's more important? I guess. Ah. Choose choose which of your creative children you love the best. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? I think. Oh, I guess I kind of got into it because originally I always wanted to be a singer, and I used to have singing lessons on a Saturday at Sylvia Young, and then at some point I started having acting lessons. And all of this was just for hobby sakes. And I already played an instrument. I've been playing the violin since I was eight, and then I started playing the piano. I don't play the violin now, just to let you all know, because I'm awful. I think I wanted to sing because I played the piano, and singing and playing the piano seemed to make sense. And then I suddenly started really liking acting. And I didn't know there was a thing as an acting musician. I didn't know that existed until I applied for Rose Bruford. And I'd been applying for other drama schools and kind of been torn between sort of the musical theatre strands they have or the straight acting strands and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do and then there was this acting musician course and I went, well that's kind of interesting because then I could still keep playing the piano and acting so it seemed like one that would that would work quite well and I wouldn't have to split my focus right or have to choose I'm greedy essentially no I don't think people should have to choose that was kind of a, a jokey way of yeah. saying it to be honest um, I know I know I'm just being facetious because <laughs> I do a bunch of things <laughs> and I don't want to choose either no I'm essentially a very greedy person so <laughs> I want to do all the things and that's one of the reasons I'm an actor because I wanted to do all the things right and say rather than training to be a doctor and a lawyer and a you know, an interior designer or a, or a politician. I get to be an actor and then I can do all of those things depending on which role I'm playing right. without having to do the training. So it's also laziness in <laughs> some ways. Yes, I guess that's what led me down that path. The initial thing then creatively that you kind of were interested mm. in was music and singing, right? Initially, we're talking like 12, 13 years old. Yeah, when did that... everybody wants to be a pop star, don't right. they? Right. So what, what made you want to do it? Like, can you, can, you, can you pinpoint a moment or a kind of time in your life, like when, when you went, right, I want to create stuff? I'd always grown up around music. Like, music was a thing, and there's no defining... Or, you know, there's no kind of memory that makes you go, ah, oh, music. It was just in the air around you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think there, was, there were moments where I realised, like, oh, I can sing. I'm one of those people who can sing. Oh, brilliant, I'll do that then. It came from there. I mean, I think there's an inevitability that I would end up performing on some level because before I 
started learning an instrument, I used to do dance classes and stuff like that. So, and I think these are things that I think parents do to kind of give you a hobby, give you a distraction, give you something to do. You know, get you go to dance, let, get, get you out of the house, stop you watching live and kicking. Um, you know, you put someone in a creative position, get to become more outgoing. I don't think my mother expected it to become an actual thing right in the end uh, and I think she got quite the shock when I was like actually well if you think about it but four years old I started dancing it's inevitable that at 18 I've decided I want to do this as an actual career right because it's not a career that parents tend to think about often parents yeah. want us to have a stable income yeah <laughs> Prospects, those sorts of things. Absolutely. So, did, was it a surprise then? You, like, as you were saying, I guess. Massive surprise. <laughs> massive surprise. There were all sorts of, uh, I guess, secret machinations that went on to try and get me to change my mind when it came to um, <laughs> that good old UCAS choosing which universities you'll go to form that you have to fill in when you're 17 right. and you have no idea Sign what you really away. want to do yeah. with your life. And. I remember having to fill out this UCAS form, and a lot of drama schools aren't on, weren't on UCAS at the time, or weren't uh, necessarily had degree courses. And I think the only ones I could put down were Rose Bruford, Lipper, and maybe De Montfort University, I think, was the other one. So I only had three universities on my UCAS wow. form, which terrified my head teacher at the time, because yeah. my school was quite academic. Right. My school was one of those schools that kind of pushed for people to go for Oxbridge. And I remember being pulled into the headmistress's office because of my choices of schools and my mother bringing home spectres from Cambridge, which she'd been given by the head because they had a music society and the music society would be enough to satiate my performance desires yeah, yeah, yeah. and obviously it was like footlights as well that, that's Oxford isn't it footlights yeah I, can, I never quite work out which one it is but um, definitely if you go to Oxford or Cambridge and you want to do comedy it's kind of a career move exactly <laughs> um, I was determined to go to a drama school like absolutely determined and I remember my headmistress only having ever heard of RADA right and so it was quite a difficult process when you're doing auditions and having to justify why you're not picking either a red brick university or a, in quotation marks, real course. <laughs> right. As opposed to a, a vocational acting course. Well, it's, it's as well, it's quite rare for drama schools to take people directly from school. Like, often they want yeah. people to have gone off and have some kind of life experience. So, again, it's, a, it's even more impressive in a way that you managed to go straight into Rosebury Food. Is that, yeah. is that that's yeah, what happened? I was, I was determined. Whether I, I, I literally said to my mother, I remember saying, if I don't get in this year, I will go again the next year. So it, it didn't matter. Right. I was going to, and I was not going to go to uni. So if it meant that I had to take a gap year to get into a drama school, then I'd take a gap year. I hadn't gotten in when I was 18 or 17, I guess. I don't know how long I would have pursued it. I would like the sort of more positive, enthusiastic side of me imagines I would have just kept knocking down those doors for years, but I don't know, because right. I was lucky enough to get in when I was 18 and then right. go from there. But, you know, arguably, if I've been knocking down doors since I left drama school, then I might as well have done it at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, I, I guess in a way, maybe that's why you got in as well. If it's if it's if it's like that's how much you care about it. Yeah, that's kind of I guess what drama schools are looking for in their students. Yeah, you want someone who actually wants to do it, 
I'm not the type of person who gives myself a you know a five year plan or where I expect myself to be. I know there are pros and cons for all of those things, but I think I knew that this was the thing that I wanted to do, and I knew I didn't want it just because I wanted to be famous. Right. I wanted to do this thing. Right. And I don't know if I had the words to say it was necessarily that I wanted to express myself, or if it's just that I wanted to be a storyteller, or I wanted to experience certain things, but I knew it was a thing that I liked doing. Right. And I was determined to do something I liked doing. Right. So when did acting come in? So you started out so music, I, yeah. dancing, Singing. performing. You know, when did acting happen? Um, so I think my first acting lessons were around about when I was 14. Like I said, because Sylvia Young used to have a Saturday school. I'm sure they still do have a Saturday school. And you could do different lessons. You, you could just do singing, you could do just street dance or ballet or tap, or you could just do the acting courses. And it literally went from singing to an acting course to an acting and speech lesson to then street dance. So I started with one and ended up with four. Wow. By the time I was 18, so doing like four hours worth of stuff on a Saturday to do with this like craving desire to like perform. And then I guess it was probably when I started drama school that it became more cemented in terms of the kind of stuff I liked. So I think I had a very sort of open, I just took everything in and was like, yeah, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that. And then when I went to drama school, I was like, oh, no, I actually really like this sort of stuff, and I really like these kind of plays, and I like telling these kind of stories, and how do you tell those kind of stories? And as my, you know, as you go through drama school, and then as I came out and my career's developed, I've done so many different kinds of things that I feel like I, I've gotten to experience a lot of different things. Right. Looking at your kind of like your acting CV, what you've done, you have done you really a have lot Googled, of different things. <laughs> I mean, you know, but I mean, because you've you know you've done you've done you have done uh, TV stuff. Uh, you've okay. done yeah a little bit, and you've done you know with me, you've done a podcast, you've mm. done but like a lot of the stuff it seems to me that you've done certainly in the last few years is like you seem to do a lot of Shakespeare, yes. right? Yeah. And also you've done sort of other classics as well, like, yeah. you know, Streetcar Named Desire and things like that. And I know that those things, ha- like those mm. classics are still happening. Um, and I love those classics. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, but I guess it's like when I was into acting, when I yeah. was young, I never thought that the things that I could be would be the, the stuff I was reading. Like I, I thought like yeah. I would end up, you know, being, I don't know, in film or like all of these or kind TV, of, you yeah. know. Whereas, like you, you, you're in like the, the you're in the classics book almost. Like you seem to be doing a lot of those things, yeah. but you are, are quite often playing against like not against type, but like people wouldn't assume that somebody who looks like you would be playing those parts, right? Yeah. To, to and I think it like it's that. only fair to probably describe what I look like. So, <laughs> for those of you who don't know me, I am five foot two. <laughs> I'm a size twenty slash twenty two, depending you know on how much I've eaten and uh, I am black of African descent so yes not necessarily your obvious casting for Shakespeare Virgin right which I've done a fair number of I think of the sort of well-known Shakespeare's the only Shakespeare Virgins I haven't done are Ophelia and Cordelia yeah I think that would be fair to say but yeah it didn't come as any more of a surprise to anyone else than it did to me. Right. Honestly, when I left drama school, I remember having a TV lesson where you, you kind of do television technique or camera technique. 
and we sat around a table and we discussed our casting and it was in the days when the bill was still on and I was really looking forward to being on the bill and it was cancelled and I never got to be on the bill and I'm really sad about that if anyone's listening I'd really like to be on the bill but <laughs> um, bring back the bill <laughs> but um, I remember being told oh you're sort of council estate single mum casting and I was like oh alright and I was 20 so that was a shock <laughs> um, and I went, sort of went with that but then when I started working I literally started falling into the classics I started doing a lot of Shakespeare and luckily I actually like Shakespeare I had a, a brilliant a couple of brilliant English teachers when I was in secondary school that made Shakespeare so easy that when it came to doing Shakespeare both in drama school and outside of drama school there wasn't a fear right. in terms of the language for me and yeah that could be because I went to an academic school so I had access to teachers who could get that across in a way that was palatable I had one English teacher who would play Jacobean music as you entered the classroom wow. before we were doing whichever set text we were doing okay. and we'd then do, we'd do Shakespeare plays that weren't part of the syllabus so I remember we did As You Like It for no curriculum reason and it's one of my favourites now so yeah when it came to doing classics it just kind of fell into place and even with the things like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird which I did and Streetcar Named Desire again they kind of fell in place too because I used to read avidly school and I loved a lot of those sort of books, things like Club Bird, The Colour Purple, All of Thunder, Hear My Cry, all of those sort of American 40s, 50s, 60s books that described a world that I didn't know but seemed familiar right? and didn't seem to exist in the same way in terms of British literary culture or not in necessarily ways that I could identify with easily. So it made sense that I'd end up doing shows like that, which doesn't mean that I don't necessarily like doing new writers. I have done new writing before, but for some reason people see me and they just go, oh, yes, Shakespeare, classics, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's great that that's, that that's, that that's yeah. happening. It's, it's counterintuitive in, in a couple of ways, just because of the fact that I don't expect people to, to cast interestingly, so it's great to hear that they are. Um, well, I think with the classics, like in some ways, if you take yeah. American classics aside, which have their specifics yeah, yeah. in terms of casting, American classics aside, things like Shakespeare actually lend themselves more I think that's really to true interesting too. casting yeah, because yeah, yeah. there isn't anything telling you, right, and that you can who or what people look like. And you can do anything with them because they've been done so many times that no one cares yeah. if you do any choices that you make around them, I mean, which is great. People well, people care. care people actually. care. You know what I'm saying? Um, that people don't care. But you know what I mean. It's it's there's, there's there seems to be more reach or a little bit more scope. So right. people are less worried, especially with the famous ones, the ones that everyone knows about who's playing what. And then you get to the problematic things like the histories. People become a little bit more narrow in that world and there's no reason for it. It's one of those subjects that everyone is talking about at the moment, and I think personally, maybe the reason why I've done so many classics is because people can go, oh, actually, she's a type, a personality type, rather than she's a looks type. Does that make sense? I, I do see what you mean, although I think it's a shame that that is what people are thinking, because I don't think that's an accurate description of you. Yeah, but, but if you're looking for, I guess, if you're saying you're looking for a, a Juliet, for example, and I played Juliet a few times, times. (laughs) you have a certain idea of what Juliet is like that you can get from the text. And sometimes you put your modern spin on it or whatever, but you have an idea of 
this is the type of person Juliet is. There's nothing in the text that tells you what Juliet necessarily looks like. Right. So then you look for the type of person that feels like a Juliet or would be a Juliet, as opposed to, can't think of a play at the top of my head, but you, there might well be one that says specifically what someone looks yeah, like. Yeah. And then suddenly your casting becomes much more narrow. I mean, but, and that's arguable that you don't have to follow that because of artistic licence. But I mean, one of the reasons that you get these parts is because you're a great actor. I mean, that's my that's view. Nice. I mean, I don't expect you to say that necessarily, but you are a really excellent actor, and you bring a lot of kind of like groundedness, I think, in your performances. So I imagine that, that that's a, a great thing to have, like whatever you're casting, to have that groundedness, because there's an energy. Like I'm going to sound wanky now, you know, but <laughs> like, there, I'm there's just an energy. Embarrassed. <laughs> but, but there's, there's a kind of energy that people have. Everyone has. Like yeah. I have an awkward energy. That's something that can be used to my advantage yeah. or disadvantage whatever uh, but I think you well, like what I get from you as an, a performer is kind of a groundedness mm-hmm. I mean I'm not saying that you can't play ungrounded characters I'm sure you can but you, you have an energy I think that I can mm. see a, a director going oh that's a, a, an energy I want in my and also it's, a, it's an ensemble energy I think that mm. you have you're very supportive to other performers within a thing I mean that's why I wanted to cast you in, in my thing because yeah. you know that that was an, ins- an ensemble of scenes that yeah. I was having and I knew that you would work well within in that and support the other people in the scene. So I guess, you know, there's all of these complicated political reasons why people are cast or not cast and all of that exists. Yeah. But there's also, you know, talent uh, that is why people get cast as well. So I don't want us to frame you as if you're just, you know, just getting cast for whatever reason. No, but, you know, it's just part of my, like... I it's think- part of the world, I'm not saying yeah. it's not, but... I just wanted to make sure that listeners understood that you were an excellent actor on top of the other things we're talking about. It's it's definitely surreal, though, the idea of you playing Juliet so much, Mm. because Juliet is so young. Yes. And And I'm not saying saying you're old. I got ID'd last week. Thank you very much. Yes, I did. That's absolutely believable. I had to pull out my professional driver's licence. Good. (laughs) Good, but but you know, and like we share a lot of the same reference points because we kind of <laughs> were born in the same d- decade, right? We're not like we're not particularly different ages to each other. Not massively. So no. I don't, but I so I don't really expect people in their thirties to be like casters. <laughs> I'm in my thirties. Well, you know, age is always a difficult thing to talk about, especially with ladies and and actors. <laughs> like because of the fact that, that that you don't want people to know because you want to be able to play any age or any and that's kind of what we're talking yeah. about, I guess. I mean, in theory, I can still play children if you're aware that I'm not a child, um, <laughs> and you're going for that, right? And I guess I don't know. I mean, there's a very like. I don't know, the fact that I played Julia and I played her first when I was 21? Yeah, I think I was 21 when I first played Julia professionally. And then 32, the last time I played Julia. Um, <laughs> that keeps it nice and vague. Yeah, and I was the oldest person there at the time. The thing is... Romeo and Juliet is a story about two people that meet and fall in love and then have an impassioned romance and die essentially for each other. And it all happens very quickly and it's all very whirlwind and I don't think that is limited to age. No way. And there was a brilliant production, I can't remember where they did it, where Romeo and Juliet were over 60. And I think this narrowness of this concept of people being a certain age when they meet right, people yeah. and, like, and I guess it kind of lends itself to being young because there's an impetuousness that comes with you but I don't think necessarily all people grow up and lose their impetuosity you know and I 
probably get ID'd a lot because I think I still behave mostly <laughs> like a child, um, which is, is useful. I can see why people cast you as Julia. <laughs> which is useful, you know, when you're an actor because you have to retain a sort of childlike quality because right. essentially your job is to play. Right, they don't call them plays for no reason. Exactly. You play with other people, you play and create an, a world you know in the same way that you did when you were a kid when you created this like imaginary world if you had siblings or friends or whatever and you'd create this world and you'd live this world for every time you were living in this world and you'd have all these complex relationships with these with each other in these worlds that's essentially what an actor does for their living but they have someone who's watching from the outside going actually that doesn't necessarily read as well because you can't have this complex right. world in this tiny little bubble if you're going to present it to other people. Right. Yeah, a director just kind of helps the play, the, the play that the other people are doing, yeah. the playfulness to then be seen by people in a kind of yeah. narrative way or whatever the play is trying to do. Yeah. Exactly. I think all actors have this youthful, childlike quality which makes it possible for them to, even if they're an old soul or even if they are older, to be able to access that level of imaginative power and put themselves in positions that aren't necessarily the easiest. Right. Because sometimes you're being asked to do things that are difficult. You're asking to present a side of yourself that you may not show anyone else or to put yourself in a position where you're either crying or angry and that may not be a facet of your personality that you necessarily show to people readily, but you've got to show it to X amount of people who are coming to watch this performance however many times, which kids just do. Right, yeah, When they're playing, they just... Because they haven't learned that they're supposed to hide crying as well, or, things like or, that. Or suppress any kind right. of emotions. They just do it until they're told they're not supposed to do it, which is one of the joys, I guess, of being an actor, because you, you do, at least you, on some level, you get that release. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, yeah, I, I, that's what I've always enjoyed about acting. I don't, even, I don't get to act that often these days, although, weirdly, uh, this, this year I've been acting myself which is yeah. not, not, not the same as, as, as being myself on stage, which I'm quite used to being. It's very weird to, to act yourself, like yeah, work I out... I find that harder, Yeah, I think. Yeah, it was... It was uh, I think I, it was much more acting was involved than I anticipated when I started the project. I thought, oh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just be myself in those situations. Yeah. I didn't think oh, how much I'd actually have to act. Yeah. Um, so it's been actually really nice to, to be using those muscles mm. again. But you're right, it is a weird thing to be yourself. Like to, Because yeah. you, you're right, when, when you're acting, you can have a mask up and you can be someone else, and that's liberating. Cause yeah. You, you can ultimate, say anything, exactly. and it's not you that's saying it. Whereas in this, Ultimately, it's always you know, coming from you, which is the bit that's difficult, because it is you, but it's not you, but it is yeah. you. It's this bit of you. Well, I think by the end of this, this series that we're vaguely hinting at, when we're talking now like I think by the end of that series I'm not me like in the same way that I I am at the start like I feel like if if we do a season two I'll be even less me (laughs) it's going to be like this I'll go off in two directions the real me and the the fictional me will become very very far apart over time I think so I guess we should maybe mention what we're actually talking about so people are like what the hell are they talking about so what we're talking about is the family tree which is currently going out we've just had your episode yes episode three of the family tree. It's yeah. a very good episode. It is. Well, it is a very good episode. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, some people have said, uh, definitely, like, have said this is my, our favourite so far. Like, a lot of people have said that. Wow. Which I think is partly because there's more conflict in that episode yeah. than in, and people do like, do like conflict. Oh, yeah, there's conflict. Um, but also I think it's because there's, you know, a group of people as well, so there's yeah. lots of, you know, lots of different 
dynamics going on it makes it quite an interesting episode to listen to yeah that show every episode was kind of improvised mm-hmm. which as I said earlier on I could see that you had that capacity from yeah. working with you in storylines but I mean do you normally improvise or is that kind of quite a rare muscle to be using yes I do uh, a lot of the work I've done has been impro heavy I've done a lot of devising work right. and not necessarily devising that comes with text so sometimes I've started with absolutely nothing other than an idea and then kind of built it from there but even when you are working with text a certain level of improvisation is required anyway to help you with characterisation or to try and unlock something in a scene that isn't necessarily working so you take it away from the text and do some impro to try and figure out how to get some of that excitement into the scene right. I guess for want of better words impro it is a muscle it is a muscle and it's one that I've been very lucky to be able to exercise a lot but I do notice when I haven't used it that there is a sort of tentativeness that comes with it because it is a little bit frightening to have not very much to hold on to right and have words preform improvisation is also quite frightening yeah if you're not used to it yeah I mean it was interesting so, so interesting doing that episode because your, your episode was the first one we recorded so that was the first one totally out of context yeah like so we so it was the first one that we did and so and it was you and Zach who, yeah. who plays your partner in that episode hadn't met each other before never met so you like came into our house like you came into the house of me and the co- my co-producer Jen's house uh, and then we're told right you've got to treat this like it's your house yeah. and you're in a relationship together yeah. for quite a number of years you've got a child yes. and all of that I mean that's not as, it wasn't quite as, as simple as that like we'd had character meetings yeah. with you both separately you knew who your characters were yeah. I felt like it, we threw you guys really in the deep end but, but we also threw us in the deep end we didn't really realise how deep you never know how deep something is until you do it right? well, until you and then you're like what, what, what are we doing you don't have time to think you just do it yeah. but you guys really blew us away it was really great like we were like the I feel like if, if it had gone badly mm. That would have impacted the entire project, really, because wow, no it was the first sure. one. No, but Jeez. you didn't know. But it was our first one, right? So if it had gone badly, we wouldn't really know how would we have steered that ship, you know. But we, after you guys did it, like we were like, right, we, we, we feel like this is going to work. You know, we've got great performers involved, and we didn't know if you guys would like work as a couple. Yeah. Like you're very different kinds of people yeah. in everyday life. That's partly why we chose you, because that's an interesting dynamic and that's why you could have some of the sparks that happen in that episode because you know we both respond to very different things or or respond to things in very different ways well yeah and also the the kind of relationship between you and your character of Cora and Ben Stack's character that that relationship is really about when something goes wrong how do you deal with that yeah um to a certain extent i mean not to say that that, 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 that you that your characters don't both love your child and all of that stuff but they, they've, they've come up with a way a strategy to deal with what's happened and so the fact that you don't quite fit together kind of works nicely yeah. because because you're trying to fit and actually that's a kind of quite a nice thing and yeah. uh, kind of makes both real. those yeah. yeah real and makes both of those characters a bit more like I feel like your character is quite sympathetic I feel like Ben is made more sympathetic by the fact that he's at least doing this thing yeah but yeah people will have to like, listen to that episode to get a little bit more context on that I should say as well we're recording in the in the, the National Theatre which is yes. very appropriate for a lot Not of this because conversation because I chose this location just so you know no that's true the Royal Festival Hall was busy today so we moved here <laughs> sounds even worse I know <laughs> 
but, but it's only because these are public spaces that you can come in yeah. for free that's why I use them but to explain to, to background sound fans the room is becoming a slightly more noisy because I guess they're preparing for this evening's theatre yes. show and so uh, theatre patrons have gathered they're drinking wine they're drinking wine and stuff that's right politics Right. I bet they're talking politics. There'll be a lot of politics talking happening. I mean, it's interesting. Like the, the the demographics of the room seem to have completely changed since when I started here. Like when I sat down here at five or whatever, like it was you know people sitting with their laptops, all, all different kinds yeah. of people. And I thought, oh, the, the National Theatre is much more reflective of society than I thought. Um, but now we're getting closer to the theatre part yeah. of the night. My preconceptions about theatre audiences are unfortunately being confirmed by what I'm seeing around us. But anyway. Yeah. I- you know, I don't, I don't know necessarily what that's about. I, I think there's still a kind of disjunct between theatre and theatre audiences or people having the permission to go. Right. I think that's partly because television's so much more accessible and so film in that you can just have it in your home and there aren't any rules. Whereas the theatre seems like, I think, to a lot of people, like an event with rules. Right. So people choose not to go and there are some people who choose to go. And I don't, I don't know how you solve that necessarily. I mean, it's, it's often about the stories you tell, but there are lots of places that actively try right. to get a, you know, a non-traditional theatre audience in. I mean, I would say you know, the National Theatre is one of those places Absolutely. to a certain extent. I mean, a lot of the, the, the current festivals yeah. and like current theatre that's happening here is, is really diverse and interesting, yeah. and, and like, that's great to see. I'm not saying it's perfect, and yeah. I'm not saying there isn't a way to go mm. and blah, 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 but... But definitely the audiences are not as diverse and uh, dynamic as the, the theatre often is. And it's an interesting thing to see. I think money's part of it. I think that is the part of it. The cost of tickets is, yeah. But again, places like the National do, do, do deals, yeah. particularly for youth audiences. But it's about knowing that those deals exist. And I'm not saying, obviously, they do promote those. I think it is because things like television and film are so much easier to download and access and obviously yeah, I'm not going to lie ticket prices are <laughs> ridiculous even I right. as a performer have to sometimes go there are shows that I just can't see because I can't afford the tickets for it right. I can't afford the tickets and I don't know anyone in it there needs to be a halfway house between the two because if you want to get a more diverse audience you have to allow for the diverse ranges of wages and the diverse interests but it's in also culture people think of theatre as just the proscenium stage and, and, it's and it's not. And the kind of theatre that Teatro Vivo and like Ampersand yeah. are, are doing in, in Deptford is is theatre too. Yeah. And that is involving the communities. Yeah. It is kind of like really connecting with people who wouldn't come into a theatre. Yeah. I mean, so like part of it's about expanding what our idea of theatre is um, mm. out across other spaces. Yeah. But it's also that, that something does have to happen because Presumium March isn't everything about theatre, no. but it is quite a useful tool often and if people don't feel they can come into places where there is a proscenium then that's a that is a problem yeah but even the you know big houses don't all just have proscenium stages it's interesting when i was i did a drama a level and we went to see a number of different shows and i'd never been to the never really been to theatre I'd been to like the town hall to see like a Yogi Bear show or something but I watched a lot of television you know if I'd been old enough to be on Teleaddict I would have been on there and I would have won <laughs> hands down because I was literally in front of the box all the time 
I'd even watch things like The Learning Zone, you know, <laughs> and I watched a lot of film. And so I remember going to the theatre, and I can't remember what the first, first thing I saw, but I remember watching Waiting for Godot at the Barbican, and I was 17, and I was just like, why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I watching this? Nothing is happening. I don't understand what is going on. And in the same year, I then came to the National, at the Littleton, when we're in the Littleton Lounge now, and I saw Mnemonic by Complicity, and it completely blew my mind. Like, I'd never seen anything like that, at all. And I was comp- I was mesmerised, I was spellbound. It was like, I was like, why hadn't we come to see this before? And I then went to see Shared Experience at the New Ambassadors, and they did Mother Courage, and again, that was another show that just changed. It was visually amazing. It was the story was so clear. I fell in love with that show, and then saw another Brett, The Good Person of Szechuan, and I saw that at Cottesloe Theatre here at the National. Those three shows, you could argue, were the three reasons I became an actor because they were so alive and electric for me but I had I went to a school that encouraged me to do that right I I was in a space that encouraged me to go to those places had I not been in that school I may never have walked into a theatre yeah I mean was it like a a grammar grammar school type thing oh those popular schools of the day (laughs) that we're talking about the grammar school right yeah right yeah I mean so I mean as much as there are problems with grammar schools Mm. I mean it is somewhere where, you know, people from whatever backgrounds can get in through passing the test, which is not, not, not too cool, I think, in mm. lots of ways, but at least, you know, it did mean that you had a more rarefied kind of education than I did, probably. I mean, I was at a comprehensive school, yeah. I had a good drama department, but, I mean, it was pretty much a prison uh, that they, you know, had occasional lessons in. Uh, rather, <laughs> rather than a place of learning, I think. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I, I'm not going to dispute, I was very lucky. And, I, and I, I, I want to make sure that people understand, I do support comprehensive schools, even though I just described my particular one as a prison. I but mean, anyway. everyone has a different experience of their school. I think I, I yeah, I, I was very lucky to get into my school. And arguably, I mean, obviously everyone's talking about grammar schools, and I've mostly stayed quiet on the subject, because how can you... How can you really talk about grammar schools when you went to one? I mean, which side of that fence are you supposed to stand on? And I think it would be really hypocritical of me to be to say that I don't think they should exist when I've benefited from their existence. And you could argue that I am the sort of example of someone who grew up in social housing and went to normal schools and then ended up in a grammar school. And going to grammar school has allowed me to experience things that I'm and I'm saying may not have experienced in had I gone to a comprehensive if I'd gone to a comprehensive I might have actually just had a normal job and there's nothing wrong with that it meant I met a load of people that were very different from me expanded my horizons and the sorts of people that I spent time with but I understand what people say about grammar schools a certain type of person ends up in a grammar school generally and that means they're not mixing with I guess the greater number of other kids so other kids aren't getting the experience that I got right but then I could I could equally argue that I my mother was a white collar worker and my father's a white collar worker so although I grew up in social housing educationally I was already in the other group of people anyway right. so all of these things are so complicated it anyway. is really complicated and the only thing I regret about getting to a grammar school is how academically competitive it is 
and I, I think that's the one thing people aren't talking about with grammar schools. Grammar schools are so competitive in terms of learning, which is potentially why the students end up doing quite well. They have good teachers to help you. But I know in my school I could leave my textbook, my notebook. We didn't have mobiles at the time, which is to say that you do know my age now. But, you know, I could leave my textbook, my notebook, my, my wallet with £100 in it, which I didn't have, but I could... And the thing that would go missing would be my textbook or my notebook. <laughs> Not. They weren't interested right. in the money. They were interested in what was... Well, many of them probably didn't have to worry particularly about, about money. About the money, exactly. That's, that is part And of I was on the other end of that, right. where I would. But, you know, I was on free lunches in a grammar school, which is fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the competitiveness of, of, of the academia in there meant that I had to push myself academically. If I'd gone to a comp, and this is going to sound particularly, I don't know, egotistical, probably. I would have been on, probably on the smarter end of my year group, which probably meant I wouldn't have tried that hard. Yeah. I'm a coaster by nature anyway, and I coasted in a grammar school, so I would definitely coast in a place where very little was necessarily expected, where I was left to my own devices, actually. Yeah. Because they're smart, they can deal with it. We need to, to concentrate the way on the goes, people who aren't. And it's perfectly valid to concentrate on the people who aren't able to keep up as well. But what happens is the people who are supposed to look after themselves don't get pushed to excel unless it comes from themselves or it comes from their families. Right. Although you were pushed to excel in your school, but you ended up choosing to excel or try and excel in something that wasn't pushed. Yeah, wasn't pushed and uh, wasn't kind of part. I'm also contrary by nature (laughs) too, so I'm not particularly fond of being led in a certain direction. I had the freedom to make that choice. Right. You know, I didn't. In my school, yes, academics were important. As long as I kept doing well academically, I could make the choice to decide to be an actor. You know. And how many people are left with that choice outside of private schools? Not very many at all. And not, not very many people think that it's an option. Like, the creative world is very rarely seen as an option for a, a job or a career, as you said yeah. earlier on. It doesn't sound like it was your parents' idea of what you do. Oh, it wasn't your school's idea of what you do. But something about you or your life up to that point made you feel like it was something that you could yeah, have. Yeah, or something I could do. Right. Um, and I think sometimes certain things limit people's scope yeah and I, and I am pro comprehensive schools but I think there's a lot we could do to make them better so oh, you yeah. would, we wouldn't have to argue about the existence of grammar schools because all that separates really a comp and a grammar school is an exam yeah I mean, I'm for reform of the education system altogether. Yeah. I mean, my experience in my comprehensive school wasn't positive, but it's, it's a lottery. It depends who... Exactly like, you know, I know people way. who've had great experiences in comprehensive schools, which have pretty much been grammar yeah. schools, but, with, with, but without actually being grammar schools. And then uh, there's some terrible comprehensive schools out there, and there's yeah. reasons why some of these things are terrible, and some of those things are to do with the way that schools are organised. I mean, literally, my school, I think, was looked like a prison like the actual architecture I think if you build a building that feels like a prison yeah. it's going to have that effect on the kids who get put and into if you, it if you treat you know if you treat children they're not even children we're talking about young adults if you treat them like they're children then of course they act up if you tell them that there's not much scope for them that they can't do this and they can't do the other yeah. well then yeah then you're limiting 
if you have no expectations of them, how can they have expectations for themselves? And, you know, at the very least, at least my school had expectations right. for its students. Right. Okay. And whether or not we wanted to meet those expectations was up to us, or whether yeah. we could meet those expectations, again, was, you know, up to us. Whereas I think sometimes with private schools, the confidence, the idea that you can get whatever you want, you can do whatever you want, is entrenched from day one, which is the one thing that I don't think comps do. They don't say you... But, you know, I'm speaking to someone who didn't want to a comprehensive. The feeling I get is you don't get, you know, the sense that you can achieve whatever, you can do whatever... I think it depends on the comp, but you're probably right. Yeah. I mean, certainly not everybody gets that sense, and it's not equally distributed amongst all of the students in a in a comp. Definitely. What is like? What has been your favourite role that you've played as a as a as an actor or performer? Oh, what kind of question is that? One that just came out of my mouth. Like so many roles that I've done, uh, I have a rule like you all should like your character, whichever character you're playing, you have to like them, even if no one else does. I have a similar attitude to writing characters, yeah. you have to like them, you have to find out what makes them a human being, at least. yeah, even if they are a complete shit. Yeah, I mean, you, you like yourself on some level, <laughs> <laughs> but gosh, it's really hard. Do you know what? It stumped me because I'm like. I'm trying to think through the years and then I'm like and all I'm stuck on is the recents and then you go well, hold on is it the most recent one that's been the most favourite or do you know what and this is going to sound ridiculous with Tetra people I was talking about how we did the Odyssey I played a character called Scylla who was part of a duo Scylla and Charybdis and right. if you've read the Odyssey they are a whirlpool and a six-headed monster that Odysseus and his crew meet on their journey. And myself and an actor called Rebecca Payton played these two characters. And obviously, one is a six-headed monster and one is a whirlpool. And how do you depict that as people? And it was, it was by far one of the most fun jobs I've done. Because for whatever reason, I decided in our process that to depict the six-headed monster, my Scylla had to have six personalities. And, and obviously this isn't me making like a associative of personality disorders. But the joy of creating all those six different six characters, characters in, in one. one, and one of them had to be a barking dog, <laughs> was so much fun. And the, the characters themselves were so naughty. And because the show had so much audience participation, it was a joy every night to find ways of just shocking the audience. Like, I remember there was one night, like, we had this whole gag, the two of us, where the audience would have, like, a biscuit in their in a bag that they were told to carry to help them on their journey. And one of the things that they had to feed us, they'd get this biscuit, and, and myself and Rebecca would have this massive fight over this biscuit. And I remember one night just taking the biscuit out of her mouth and eating it. <laughs> and one night she picked up a piece of chocolate from the floor. I don't know, and we were on the street, we ended up the night street. <laughs> she picks up this random bit of chocolate. And again, I took it out of her mouth and ate it. And I was just like, this is ridiculous, this is insane. But I was having the most fun and licking audience members' faces, you know, the ones that seemed like they were up for it, or smelling their armpits, just being generally quite gross and hands-on. Right. It's kind of like, you know, they sign up to it, so you're all going to get it. But, yeah, that's probably the most, one of my most favourite That's roles. a great answer. It's just licence for... That's a 
Can that I, does sound like a lot of fun. Yeah, it was so much fun. So wow. much fun. Well, it's been. It's also been so much fun talking to you today. <laughs> it's been like, a real pleasure. Um, and like we probably we should finish up because yeah. otherwise we're, we're like I feel like we're, we're becoming almost a theatre piece in ourselves, right? Like you know, this, we're getting surrounded by people. And they're like kind of like aware that I've got a microphone. What, what are they doing? And who is she? Yeah, and exactly. Why, why are they, they underneath the video? No, there's a there's a TV above us. I mean, is she important? Telling people information about the theatre above our heads, so people are kind of having to look at that, and then we're underneath it. The last question that I ask everybody mm. is, do you have anything to plug? I am doing a show at the moment. I'm in rehearsals, and I'm about to open a show called Comus, which is a John Milton mask um, at the Globe Theatre. So we open on the 26th of October, well. running through to the 19th of November. And it is uh, one hell of a show. <laughs> it right. will be. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, like, you today you've, like been rehearsing for that and then you've come here so I def- come here. we definitely should finish up because otherwise <laughs> you know this has like been the longest day for you so people should go and check that out people should come and check that out yeah there's so many reasons why people should come and check this out yeah excellent well I'll put a link to that in the show notes and you're also appearing in the family tree so I'm, I'm also gonna, appearing in the family which tree is, most be in a, you'll be in another at least yeah you'll be in another episode of that later in the season yes I will be and, and what an episode that is <laughs> it's an interesting episode so people can check that out at www.thefamilytree.co.uk or iTunes or wherever <laughs> so uh, yeah and the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience okay goodbye audience uh, have a lovely afternoon morning or evening depending on what time you listen to this <laughs> bye everybody you can find The Family Tree at www.thefamilytree.co. UK. And if you want to hear me and Tasha talking more about The Family Tree, we did actually talk quite a bit more about The Family Tree, but I cut it out because it contained spoilers. But if you want to hear me and Tasha, the uncut version, talking about The Family Tree, if you go to The Family Tree Patreon and subscribe as one of our patrons, then you'll get that eventually as part of our special features that we'll be giving to patrons who signed up for that package. We do really, really want to make a second season, and so we really would like you to help us to do that by signing up over there. And we've got loads of really cool things that we're going to give to you as a kind of reward or to say thank you or however you want to view that transaction but basically it's just a way that you can help me to make art without anybody in between and if you listen to getting better acquainted if you're a regular listener to this show and you'd like to give something back to me because this is a free show as is the family tree then please become a patron and and help that tree to grow we've had four episodes of the family tree so far then on fridays we also have the family tree cuttings which is kind of a show in itself where i talk to some really cool and interesting real people about stuff and they talk about that so if you're a fan of getting better acquainted you'll also like the family tree cuttings all of that isn't just done by me it's done by my partner jen as well she's the co-creator and co-producer of the show but it's also written by the amazing performers and we'll have some more conversations with some of those performers later this year and the best thing you can do for me and the family tree is to help spread the word tell people about it and if you've got a little spare few moments of time maybe even pop on itunes and give us an itunes review because that's really important and also actually another thing that would be really amazing 
amazing and helpful is if you could ring up the Family Tree's voicemail and leave your theories about what the answer to the mystery is. That's going to become even more important as the show goes on because by the end of the season, some of those messages may very well influence what happens in the second season so you can become part of the writing process of that show. So if you're listening to it already and you haven't given us a ring, please do so. That's enough from me. You can find Getting Better Acquainted pretty much anywhere that podcasts go to hang out on the internet and you can like getting better acquainted on facebook you can follow it on twitter at gba podcast i'm on twitter at goosefat 101 and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted on monday the 26th of september i'm launching my new podcast the family tree When my dad found out about a mystery concerning a long-forgotten friend of his, I decided to investigate it in the only way that I know how, by having conversations. I can't make judgments or say anything without knowing all the facts and everything around it. It's sort of exploring each of the parameters of each potential story you're given and trying to work out how it can fit into each one of those. And I guess in a way it's all of them until until it's none of them or one of them. Mark Sullivan, who disappeared 15 years ago, was found dead in January this year when a forest was cleared for a new building development. I see the world differently, having known Mark Sullivan. You're like the the, the person who's the witness for all of them. Mm-hmm. You're, you, the only yeah. thing they'll know of their dad as, a, as an adult, you know, is going to be through, through your eyes. I mean, I guess that's quite a big responsibility. It's, it's difficult. The body they found still had the arm and teeth that he lost in a car accident and seems to have died eight years before he disappeared. I mean, who's the dad you'd spent so much time with if your dad is a body that can't be the dad that you grew up with. It doesn't make any sense. Like, even if there's some other reason for that other body, he'll still have died. But whether I would have felt different if Mark had disappeared before the accident compared to when he did disappear, I don't know. You keep talking about this mystery, and I don't, I think... I don't know. I think someone's made a mistake somewhere. I know you don't mean it like this, but the question's almost offensive. In this podcast, I try to unpick this mystery through a series of conversations with Mark's family and friends. But I don't know, and there's only so many ways that someone can say I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's a mystery, it's just... Yeah, you said it's a mistake. There are things that I think I probably can't tell you about. But you also can't deny that it's it's evidence. Obviously, there's a difference between evidence and proof. Right. I mean, there are things you can't explain. If he turns up, he turns up. But, you know, we're fine as we are. He's not going to. So, yeah, I'm not thinking about it because... Because he's not going to. to. If ghosts do exist, I think they wouldn't look how they looked when they when they died. They'd go back to how they looked in life. So, so Dad's ghost would have an arm. And I wasn't sure what you would have perceived that as. It's interesting that now I'm sort of this far into this project, I've spoken to so many people and I still don't really have anything uh, to fill those holes with. Did Mark have a twin? Was there some sort of shady dealing on the part of the police? Was there was there a mistake in the identification? All of these questions are in the air, I think. I can't explain how that ghost then became a, a body that, that's been buried. That's a, a sort of a gap for me. I don't understand what he's talking about, how about how he doesn't want to talk about it. Right. I mean, he's got two 
dads, essentially. I've kind of decided to frame the show as if it's fiction. Isn't this just like upsetting everybody all over again? Like, it's, you know, it's not very nice. I think God does move in mysterious ways. There are things that are in some ways beyond our understanding, I think, and are nevertheless true. For more information about the show, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. It's too much for one person to puzzle out by himself. I don't have answers. I don't know.